This is The Politics of Everything, and I'm your host, Amber Danes. Welcome to the podcast where we want to discuss the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment to equality, and much more. Our guests are experts in their field or topic of choice, even if you've not yet heard their name. This is a bipartisan podcast. So while we love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate, by no means is this a one-sided forum for any one political view. So please listen up and enjoy the politics of everything. Welcome to the politics of everything. Today I'm with Emma Vega-Malter, who at first glance has a story that may appear pretty ordinary a mother who successfully launched a creative business from her artistic studio while raising a family and supporting her husband's career is nothing new. Emma is the founder of Bespoke Backdrops, a company changing the face of video backdrops one brushstroke at a time. However, to gloss over her backstory is to really miss the pearls of wisdom for us all. Emma has lived a real-life tale of riches to rags, and as she says, hopefully riches again, that begins in the UK. She went to art school, fell in love and moved her whole life to Switzerland where yachts, villas and the attractive trappings of external success were the norm, the fruits of hard work and a thriving global economy. That all changed overnight when the global financial crisis hit her husband's business to a point of no return. What happens next is the best part. Emma is here today to recount a very personal story of what the politics of persistence has meant to her. Welcome, Emma. Hi, thank you, Amber. Thanks for having me. Well, let's go back to the the beginning Tell us a little bit about your childhood in England. What was your family like and what do they do for a living? Well, I come from a really happy home, Um, mother and father. I was born in Africa and when I was three, I moved back to England because my father's English and my mother's Dutch. And my family was always quite entrepreneurial. I don't think anyone in my family actually had an office job, even my my grandfather. They always worked for themselves. So my father moved from Africa to England and six weeks into his job as an engineer, he quit and start, started his own engineering um, firm out of the garage at home. So that was all a bit um, a bit scary for my mother, who, although she was a, tr- a traditional stay-at-home mother, she did help my father because there wasn't internet in those days. So she did all the banking and the printing. So I always had my parents at home with me. So I was really lucky in that sense. Um, and they were quite creative. So my father drew and my mother also drew. And the first memory I ever have of art was lying on the floor with my father and he had an old cornflakes packet, um, the back of it, a cardboard um, uh, piece of paper and a pencil. And there was nothing on this cardboard. And then a bus appeared. He drew a bus. I was about three or four years old and a bus appeared out of nowhere with my name on the side. And that was a real pivotal moment to realize that, my God, creativity and art is really exciting and you can create things how you want it. You can draw and design things how you want them to look. And so my parents really encouraged that and my mother did the same. So that's amazing. So that was sort of the early entrepreneurs. I mean, we now have a lot of families which have home-based businesses and, you know, parents sort of sharing the load, but that sounds like they're early adopters of that. And you touch on the idea of entrepreneurism. And I must admit, I think being an entrepreneur and being creative is kind of the perfect match. So for you, did you believe that, you know, that art was going to be something you'd make a living from? I know a lot of artists don't subscribe to that theory and you end up having to make a choice between, you know, the generating the livable income and having the full-time arts career. When you were interested in art growing up, did you think it would be something you'd be able to make a living out of? I don't think I 
actively thought, how much money can I make out of this? I knew that I would do something creative. To be absolutely honest, because entrepreneurialism wasn't a thing, you know, in the 90s when I was growing up, um, I just thought that I'd have a creative job in publishing or something related to the arts. So other people would be creating the art and I would be in a supporting role making money from that. Um, That's very but, interesting. Yeah, but I've, I've, always, I've always sold my art. So when I did start selling my art, I always took money for it. There was always a fair exchange of money to art. And I do believe that there's this attitude woven into society that somehow art and money shouldn't go together. It's like the starving artist mentality. And I really never bought into that. I never felt bad taking money for my art, even though I know it's kind of the normal way to think about it. People think either money is greedy and art is worthy and the two can't go together, but it can be the other way around. You know, oh, absolutely. I must admit, I mean, I, I've long supported the arts and I've kind of got this entrepreneurial and corporate side and I've got this art side. And I must admit, I've never thought about not buying art, if that makes sense. I've never yeah. said to my friends, oh, you know, can you just paint me that painting? Because I have a lot of artistic friends. I've definitely gone, I love your work. Yeah. This is what you do. Why would I not? pay for it well you're very you're 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 wonderful you're the best kind of client possible because a lot of people do ask creative to do things for free because it's good for your portfolio or it's good for exposure and I always say that exposure is something you die of on a side of a mountain it's not a business plan so there is that thing that people expect you to give your creativity away for free because in some way it's going to be good for your future but eventually your art has to pay so um, I don't really subscribe to the starving artist mentality, though I know it's everywhere. Even in art school, I went to art school for a year and they do have the underlying tone, especially in the early 90s when I was at art school. There was no business studies linked to my art studies. And so that kind of thing. That's a massive oversight. Definitely, definitely. And I think the two can be perfect together if you can, you know, make it, make the marriage work. Absolutely. So not look after graduating from art school, you did land a big job opportunity in fashion. And I'm curious to know how that worked out for you and what it taught you about the idea of persistence. Well, this is interesting. Um, when I graduated, I had my first job in fashion, as you said, and I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Devil Wears Prada. We've all well, seen when it. I, <laughs> when I saw that movie, my blood ran cold because that was my life. I was the assistant and my boss was the character that played Meryl Streep. And I lived in constant fear of my boss um, in the fashion industry. And that the fashion industry does perpetuate this kind of um, atmosphere. And as far as persistence was concerned, I think you can actually be persistent and give your... Um, give your persistence to the wrong type of people. So I was really persistent in trying to please my boss. And in actual fact, I was giving away my energy to the wrong person. So persistence can actually work the other way as well. It's and also so I'm assuming you left thing. fashion, that wasn't a long-term career for you. No, it definitely Indeed. wasn't. It wasn't <laughs> it's good to have those early career experiences to work out what you don't want as well. So how business-minded were you when you met your husband, who at the time I believe was pursuing sort of the more financially rewarding career path in the, in the banking and finance world? Did business and numbers mean much to you? Not in the business sense, no. If I, if, if I made money, it was a fair exchange. Here's a painting for a couple of hundred dollars. So business didn't mean anything to me. I left it all to him, really, um, which in hindsight 
I wish I hadn't done. I wish I'd been a bit more business savvy back then. But back then, um, you know, I was just selling my arts and I didn't see it as a bigger picture as a business. It was just a fair exchange of money for creativity. That's really interesting because I think a lot of us, um, and it, it does sound very gendered, but, you know, particularly if you've got a partner, it's very normal for women to sort of only know maybe what the family budget involves, but not that bigger picture about how, how what their partner's doing, what they're doing is contributing to the bigger world. So I don't think you'd be alone in that, but it is, it is an interesting cautionary tale given the fact of what things, you know, unfold later on. Yes. So taking us to the next stage, describing the events that happened to you and your husband in terms of the business about 10 years ago, almost to the day, I imagine, that instantly oh changed your life. I'm just looking. It was the 15th of September, um, 2008. So we're talking nine years ago. Nine years ago. And um, Lehman Brothers collapsed. So the global financial crisis happened. And my husband's business was in the financial markets. Um, and he lost pretty much 80% of his business overnight. He'd started his own business. So it was him and two partners. Uh, we were living in Switzerland at the time. And his whole business came to a grinding halt literally overnight because the banks eventually got their bailout and the stimulus package happened. But as we all know, in hindsight, they actually sat on that money. They didn't um, pass it through you know, the economy. So we were really hit quite drastically. And paint a picture of what your life was like before that day. What, what was normal for your family and your life? Well, we had been living in Switzerland for about seven years and my husband's business was going really well. So we, were, we had all the sort of stereotypical trappings of wealth. We had a chalet in the mountains, a house with a pool. There was expensive holidays and cars and, you know, all, all the sort of stuff that you would imagine you would do if you had money. Um, and we lived in that sort of environment in Geneva where everyone else was very affluent and was living the same kind of lifestyle. So that was my my everyday life. And so that was kind of um, very frightening when it all got sort of pulled away from us very fast. Absolutely. And I'm assuming you would have had children by this stage as well. So there were other people to consider, not just you and your husband. Absolutely. We had um, a five-year-old and a seven-year-old at the time when the GFC happened. Wow. And so what was it like in the weeks afterwards? How how did you remain persistent to keep your family together, for example? I mean, given the fact that looks like, you know, the money is sort of not going to flow in anymore. What actually happens in those days and weeks afterwards? Well, firstly, you, you actually don't believe that um, your boat's going to sink. You don't actually think like the Titanic, you're going to hit the iceberg. So I just carried on as normal. Um, luckily, I've always been really good with money and never overspent in sort of that sort of crazy consumerism. So life didn't really change very much as far as household activities were concerned. Um, so I didn't change too much, but my persistence of thought was that we just cannot go down. This this is just not happening. We will be fine in the end. And it's that kind of naivety and optimism that sometimes was a bad thing. But I think overall, looking back, it's quite a good thing to be quite persistent in being optimistic, even when things are looking really quite dire. It's that idea of uh, you can only really do one day at a time, I guess, if you're in that in that space. So we don't really know what this looks like. We've not experienced this before. So I think survival techniques must come into that way of thinking too. And you've got to obviously keep it together for your kids and you've got to try and have some semblance of normality in the face of such adversity. 
Absolutely. And keeping it together for the kids was really important. And I'm, I'm so grateful to this, to the fact that when the kids were growing up and they were young and we did have, you know, a lot of money, I didn't spoil them. So they didn't expect all those toys and those gifts and, you know, going to the shop and that pester power. I never subscribed to that. So when we all of a sudden lost, you know, the lifestyle, it didn't really make a huge impact on the children because um, we just carried on as normal. Absolutely. So did you feel like in those sort of dark days, if you like, that having money again was going to be inevitable or that building a new life would be simple and and it would look very similar? Did you, did you have an idea about how you'd move forward as a couple? Um, yes, I always felt like, um, a wealthy woman as it were. So I never felt that, oh my goodness, I'm going to give up on this whole idea of, of, of sort of earning money again. Um, I never gave up on, on, on that. Um, but my husband and I just, had to sort of find new strength to sort of build that up again. Um, and I never gave up on realizing that one day we would make money again. It was not like, oh, well, that was a great ride. We had, you know, 10 good years. Let's give it up now and, and move on. I actually felt like I was always meant to earn money and have money. And it was just very strange to not have it. Um, so I was quite persistent in that. Like, we will get back on our feet again. There is absolutely no doubt um, that we will do it. Um, some days it felt like it was impossible, but we had that persistence of thought that we would definitely, you know, rise up again. Absolutely. I love that idea of, you know, you, you talk about the riches to rags and hopefully riches again. That optimism is, is really important, I think, to kind of visualize that you, you can have a new life and maybe a more meaningful life. And so how did you come to Sydney? How do you get from Switzerland to Sydney? A long way. <laughs> Well, yes. So going back to the, the, the global financial crisis, my husband realized that his company needed to diversify their products because um, the good old days were gone. We had They had to diversify into the Asian markets and the Australian markets, which are much more stable and they still had a growth um, path in them. So my husband being Australian himself, having an Australian passport, it just seemed like the natural thing to come over to um, Sydney and start again and expand his business. So he still had his business in Switzerland at the time, and he was going to expand um, into Asia and Australia. So that's why we moved over. Absolutely. And what year was that? What, what sort of time? 2010. Time? Great. So you've been here for quite a number of years and you now have a business. So persistence is a big part of being a small business owner. I know 10 years into this <laughs> and it's interesting, your business is bespoke backdrops and I'm bespoke communications. Yes. So we've definitely similarly, similarly minded there. And I guess for you, it's a combination of your visual arts talent and your style combined with a real business need, which obviously makes it successful. So small business owners and other people who might want original video backdrops or something that looks amazing for their home office or their media walls for events. How did this seed of an idea start and why do you think it's been quite successful for you so far? Well, the idea came... um... In 2015, I was just scrolling through a Facebook uh, business group that I belong to. And at the time, I was designing fabrics. Um, and so I was just scrolling through and someone was asking where she could find um, fabric backdrops for her webinars, custom fabric backdrops for her webinars. And nobody could really point her in the right direction. And literally, I had a light bulb moment. 
they do happen. I thought, oh my goodness, I design textiles using my art, my creativity. I already have the printing guys set up. I already have, you know, all the tools of the trade. I just need to change my marketing message, change my, you know, my market, my client base. And I've actually got a business ready to go because some, if, if one person is asking for a custom backdrop to make their videos and their webinars look better, you can bet your bottom dollar quite literally that there's going to be other people wanting the same thing. So that's how it started. And did you start purely online? I mean, how did you build the business? I mean, you have this great idea. You've got this. Did you have a, a capsule range of products um, that you people could buy and you sort of tested the market? So sort of how full on did you make it in the beginning? Oh, not full on at all. Because I started with the bespoke backdrop started with no website and no clients Um, because I was really wanted to build this business from the ground up, a really lean startup, because my previous business that I started when I first arrived in Australia uh, was again an online business. But I threw all the whistles and bells at it. I built a software platform. I spent money on marketing and all kinds of things because I didn't realize that you could actually start a business very lean. Um, So I started Bespoke Backdrops with absolutely nothing and I listened to the market. So I had no clients. Um, Even though I had this great idea, I spoke to somebody who I knew in the video world and I said, Andrea, is this going to be a good idea? Will this fly in your experience? And she said, it will. And I think I have a customer for you. So I started off with one customer in my first month. And then I had one customer in my second month and it slowly grew from that. And I built my website around what my clients were saying and what I felt was needed rather than doing it the other way around, which I did with my first business, which was build it completely to perfection and then hope that people would come and buy. Very smart. And I think that theme of persistence must come through as well, because you could have thought, well, I'm not meant for business. This first startup didn't really work. Why would I be good at this? But it sounds like you definitely still had a vision that you wanted to use your creativity in a commercial sense. Absolutely. And this is the thing with creativity in general. I can't stop being creative. Whether I'm being paid for it or not, I will always be designing, creating art. So there was never an idea of, oh, I'm just going to give up on business. I just thought, right, I need to change it. I need to pivot. I'd been to Silicon Valley before I started Bespoke Backdrop. So I was very aware of pivoting and looking at your numbers and your metrics and understanding where the money was coming from. So by this stage, I did understand my business numbers. And I just realized, okay, the first business wasn't working. I'm always going to be drawing and painting. I might as well make money from it. What else can I do? And that's when that Facebook um, post came up and the light bulb moment happened. That's incredible. And how many backdrops would you have done or how many customers have you had in this past couple of years since you launched the company? Well, I haven't counted all the clients, but I know in the last uh, financial year, I've had over 100 clients. That's amazing. Just organically happening. So you sound like you're you're onto a winner, which is great, Emma. Yes. Changing tack a little bit. You spoke very boldly recently in an event I saw you um, speak at called and Mama Creatives, and we've had Anna Kellerman on the program before talking about the politics of creativity. So I have a lot of creative people in my life as well, and a lot of them are mothers and and parents and so forth. But you made a claim, and it really stuck with me, that motherhood is the biggest excuse. And you sort of extrapolated in the talk about in terms of mums maybe not pursuing their own goals. And what has led you to believe that? Is it from your own experience or observing others or a bit of both? 
Well, from my own experience, I grew up with a mother who was a stay-at-home mother. She didn't have her own career. And a lot of my friends growing up in England was exactly the same. The mothers stayed at home and the fathers went out um, to work. So that was very much a generational thing. Um, But then I realized that when I had my son, um, six weeks after he was born, I had an exhibition um, planned in Switzerland. And I could have quite easily have said, goodness, I've just had a baby. This is ridiculous. I cannot have an exhibition and a baby. And I realized that if I had made that excuse to myself, I would probably never have picked up a paintbrush ever again. Because there's this kind of underlying tone in society that if you as a mother put yourself second, you are somehow a better mother. Like if you are a martyr to your family, you are a much better mother and your kids will thrive. And I actually believe it's completely the opposite. I think that being a mother is a really great opportunity to be a role model for your kids and your daughters or, or and your sons as well, that you can be a great parent and still be you. So I think a lot of people and a lot of friends I know who always say to me, oh, I'd love to start a business, but I'd like to start a business, but I've got to do the school run. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. And it makes me frustrated because that's just an excuse to play small or not even playing small. It's an excuse not to follow who you are, because we are more than just parents. We are also ourselves. And it's it's not fair if you sort of hide away from that, especially if you want to to sort of explore the opportunities in life. But then you hide behind motherhood because it's quite comfortable. It's quite comfortable to say, oh, I, I'm not trying that because I'm a mum. And that yeah, no, I totally agree. I'm hearing you and I'm nodding my head because <laughs> I've always worked and I think financially I've had to work, but yes. also I, I love it. I do it for nothing. Like I, I literally feel like contributing to the bigger world and like you say, playing big rather than small is just who I am. And I think as a mom, it's been challenging. I always say when all the balls are in the air and it's going well, it's amazing. And then when kids get sick and you need to be, you know, public speaking in front of 500 people or on a plane to Singapore, like I've had to do before, you do have guilt and you have things, but it's about the bigger picture. And that's what, in hindsight, I'm so glad I've never stopped working because my oldest son's almost nine. And, you know, the idea that you wait until they're, you know, I don't know, in high school, I mean, that's- What's that magic number? That's- a waste to me and I think you do have a lot more hours and capacity in the day if you find something you love and it sounds like you've definitely found that absolutely and and a a lovely story that that happened when I went to Silicon Valley years ago I won a pitch contest and my son was 14 at the time and my both my kids had always known me to have an art studio at home always known me to be doing some kind of work and creativity and I went to Silicon Valley and just I was about to leave my son said to me mum I'm so proud of you and oh, wow. that was just incredible. Like, I was like, yes, they're seeing the joy in achievement and the joy in following something, you know, for yourself. So I was really happy when he said that to me. <laughs> oh, that's great. It's great when they get to that point. They actually, rather than just asking you, you know, mom, where, where are we going next for soccer or, we you know, what's yeah. for dinner? They're actually recognizing you for who you are beyond the motherhood role. Absolutely. It was great. It was a great moment. <laughs> There's a question I ask all my guests and I'd love to ask it to you and and I'm sure you've had some time to think about it, but do you have any special mentors or inspirational people that you draw strength from? And it could be famous people, non-famous people, but if you could think about maybe one or two people, what have they taught you about life and success as you've gone through this journey of persistence? Well, I've always had um, 
not always, I don't have a mentor at the moment, but I've had mentors in the past and they've always been male mentors actually, because I do like that sort of mix between the masculine and feminine energies um, in business. Um, And they've taught me a lot about numbers and business numbers and running a business and growing a business. Um, I currently have um, sort of a a casual mastermind of women who are, you know, all in, in small business themselves. And I draw a lot of strength from them. It's like peer support. But on sort of a wider scale, people that really influenced me. Um, one of the first books I ever read when we were going through this massive financial crisis was Denise Duffield Thomas's book, Get Rich, Lucky Bitch. And she um, helped me understand the power of creating wealth for myself and changing my mindset and changing my thought patterns around money, around business. Because at that time, I had to think, goodness, I need to help my husband get out of this financial mess that we're in and take the responsibility off his shoulders and sort of help him by building my business. And that took an awful lot of changing of my thought patterns. And Denise Duffield Thomas really helped me through her book um, to do that. Oh, that's incredible. Yes. Denise's stuff is quite powerful. And just even the fact she has, you know, those words on the front of her cover of her book is, is, is for some women very confrontational, but I actually love it. And you know, I've got a couple of people in my network as well who really challenge that. Um, my accountant and, and sort of business mentor that I've known for many years, and she's a good friend, Melissa Brown. She's just launched a book. She's an accountant. She's launched a book called Unfuck Your Finances, and I just love it. <laughs> I think it's I've got a little asterisk for the you so that you kind of, you know, can go on bookshelves and not offend anyone at the airport. But yes. it's great. It's all about women and money and, and actually making sure that you don't put your head in the sand and, you know, whether you're waiting for Prince Charming or you're divorced or whatever your situation is, yes. that she's really about empowering women to to own the money, own own their own money story. Absolutely, absolutely. That was very, very key for me in the past. So last piece of advice before we wrap up today what would you want to share with anyone listening who wants to empower themselves to get ahead in the politics of persistence? Well, I live by this mantra in life, and it's that 80% of success is showing up. So you don't have to be the smartest or the most well-connected or the most educated to actually succeed in life, however you think success looks for you. You just have to show up. You just have to go to that event You just have to call that person. You have to make that first baby step in launching a business or creating a product. You just have to show up because ideas are one thing and everyone can have great ideas of what they want to do in their life and how they want to succeed. But actually, you've got to take the action. You've got to take the steps. So I always say to my kids um, and to myself that 80% of success is just showing up. I love that. It's been a pleasure to have you on the program today. If you want to connect further with Emma, we're going to have some details on our show notes. You've been listening to The Politics of Everything. Until next time, keep well. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed The Politics of Everything, we thrive on feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network and your friends and family. I'm also always on the hunt for fabulous new guests. So if you've got a view to share and an idea how to get our listeners excited, please email me at amber at bespoke comms, that's B-E-S-P-O-K-E-C-O-M-M-S dot com dot A-U and we'll be sure to get back to you. Until next time.